RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. That always uh, helps us out a lot. If you have a question for the show, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. And you can always reach me by phone or text 855-LAWFATHER. So uh, let's get into the kind of meat and potatoes, if you will, of the show. And let's look at something that is really pertinent in the news today and something that is... You know, maybe not a lot of people know about in terms of the process. Uh, I think we've all heard a lot about the the thing as a whole, and that is grand juries, and that has really come up with the Breonna Taylor shooting in uh, in Louisville. Uh, as you may know, police had a warrant and went in, and there was shots exchanged by both sides, and unfortunately, Breonna Taylor was one of the people that were shot in the midst of of that shootout, if you will. And recently, I believe it was last week, could have even been the week before, but within the last two weeks here, there was a grand jury impaneled and the potential for charges were brought up to that grand jury. So what is that? What is a grand jury and how does it work and who are they and what do they do and kind of everything else that goes along with that? Because there's we hear it a lot, but we may not know exactly what it is. So a grand jury is kind of similar to what we would think of in a regular jury, in a jury trial, if you will, uh, but there's more people involved in it and it's more private. But here's what it is. It's a, a group of people that have been impaneled by the court to hear whether or not charges will be brought against somebody. And the way charges are brought against somebody is through an indictment. And that indictment can come in one of two varieties. It can be a written indictment by the state attorney's office, or it can be an indictment through a grand jury. That is how charges actually make it into the court system. So if we look at the process to take a step back, if let's say you were arrested by the police, they then submit their affidavit to the state attorney and the state attorney has to file what we call in Florida an information. That is actually how the court process gets started for you. Okay. That, or for you as a criminal defendant, uh, then the other way is through an indictment and, or excuse me, through a, a grand jury, which provides then an indictment. And so let's look at what charges are required because there's only one category of charges that are required for a grand jury indictment. And that is murder cases in which the death penalty is going to be pursued. So by law in Florida, the only, the only criminal charges that are required to be charged through a grand jury indictment are murder cases in which the state is going to seek the death penalty. That's it. Uh, that is the only one. Now, how do grand juries come up in other ways? Well, when there is public interest at play, uh, controversial, controversial cases, and wrongdoing by public officials. Okay, It's not statutory that it's mandatory for those to fall under the grand jury system, but those can. And if we look at the Louisville shooting, I think it... it it checks two of those boxes 
okay? Uh, police aren't technically public officials as at least I would think of them. I would think of uh, more of your politicians as your quote-unquote public officials, but you could put police officers in that category. And quite clearly, as we have seen, uh, it is a controversial topic. So it would fit the mold of a grand jury. So what is that grand jury? They are considered an investigating, reporting, and accusing agency within the circuit court. And the circuit court in Florida is our highest court of trials. Okay, you have small claims court as the lowest, county court as the middle one, circuit court as the one above that, and then you get into the appellate courts and the Supreme Court. And generally speaking, uh, these citizens, so it's just ordinary, regular citizens, so think of when you get selected for jury duty, it's the same as that. When, when you get a jury summons that is saying, hey, you have to show up for jury duty, it could be for trial court or it actually could be for a grand jury. And in this, when you're summoned for the grand jury, you, you are specified for a certain amount of days. Uh, I believe the day count is about 21 days that you are on this grand jury and you may have no cases that come up during that time period. You could have 21 cases, one each day that comes up. So that's where it ends up being a little different. If you get jury selection, if you're selected for a jury in a trial court, you're in for that one trial and that one trial only, and then you're done. All right. In the grand jury, you're there for a specified number of days and there's more people uh, there. There's a regular jury is six to 12, depending on the case. The grand jury is generally much larger than that. Also, one of the biggest differences between a grand jury and a regular trial jury is that grand jury proceedings are essentially secret. Okay. And it's not secret in terms of trying to hide things from people, but it's not public. And I think that that, I think the the theory behind it is if you make it secret and non-public, okay, I think non-public is a better way to word it. You give these jurors the opportunity to really express their opinion, to really come up with a result that is based on the law and the facts, I think, uh, you know, if you keep it public, you end up with these outside influences. You start wondering, well, what are people gonna, going to think if I vote this way and if I vote that way or anything else? So it takes away that, that pressure that can come up from that unknowingness of, well, if somebody knows which way I voted, it could impact me. And we're seeing that really across the board. We're seeing that as people speak out and, and give quotes on certain things where there's backlash. But in a grand jury situation, we don't want a backlash. We want somebody who is going to provide their opinion based on the facts that they're hearing. So that is, I think, a very important part of it. Uh, the grand jury, they really answer to nobody and and no no government official they don't they're literally answer to nobody except for the court that they're sitting in and really it's only a check and balance that that judge in that court for that grand jury can just make sure that that grand jury isn't exceeding its authority and privileges okay so grand juries have a lot of power they have the power to indict or not indict and they can do it 
in private and they or not that they can do it in private it is it is absolutely private which is what we're hearing in the brianna taylor is her attorneys want those records unsealed and to be provided to the public and in my opinion from a legal stance you end up in a very slippery slope of when is it okay to make those documents public versus when is it not okay to make them public and you know we may be answering to the court of public opinion in that. And I think that's a very bad place to set precedent. And when we're looking at something that is as important as a grand jury, I think it's really important that we keep those things sealed and out of the public eye. And, and on that, not only is it not public, but there's actually in Florida, there's state statute that does limit and prohibit anybody from speaking about the grand jury. So even if you're on the grand jury, you can't provide any details about what you heard during that process, which differs a little bit from the trial court process because there are avenues and there are ways that we as trial attorneys can, we can pull the jury so we can ask them to who voted guilty or not guilty. Okay. Um, We can do that. There are avenues potentially to get feedback from jurors. Now the jurors have the absolute right to decline. Okay. You can't, they can't be forced, but they're not prohibited from making any statements about why they answered the way they did. And and that for us as trial attorneys is, is very important because we want to know, we can guess and, and we can try to read body language as we're going through a trial. But it's much more powerful to be able to say, I know why that person voted that way. And it helps us for the future because we can start going, okay, this worked or this didn't work. Well, you, you can't do that in a grand jury. So that is how that works. Uh, the the kind of law school version of grand jury and what it is and and, and how indictments come through. Uh, the the kind of saying goes, you could indict a ham sandwich uh, in a grand jury proceeding. So you know, whether or not that is true, you know, kind of remains to be seen. But that is what a a grand jury is. And that is how it works. So that was the process of how we got to the charges or no charges in the Louisville case, the Breonna Taylor case. But while we're on that topic, let's look at a few things. Um, Because as pro law enforcement as I may be, uh, as spending six years in law enforcement and still having multiple friendships with people in law enforcement. There are some things in this that you look at and you go, okay, I understand why this was done. And there are some things that you look at and go, okay, you know, what, what do we have? What are we looking at here and everything else? So let's break down the Taylor warrant and kind of the preceding factors as we get into this. So keep in mind also, I don't have any special inside knowledge of that specific instance, only what has been provided by the news, okay? But I can tell you that I have been involved in training for no-knock warrants. I have been involved with warrants, okay? I've been involved in a lot of different situations, so I can speak on a little bit of firsthand knowledge of how these things should go, okay? Now, this thing, from what I understand, comes down a little bit to training, okay? There's probably some training methods that need to be reevaluated and whether it's an across the board law enforcement training issue or it is a training issue specific to that particular unit that's that kind of remains to be seen but 
how do we get to the point of the police being at the front door with a warrant? Okay, that's that's kind of a key piece here because these officers didn't just show up at Miss Taylor's front door. It wasn't what we call a, a knock and talk, right? Where you have a tip and you literally go and you knock on the door and you try to get information and try to search the house and try to make an arrest. It wasn't that. It was a warrant. So what does that mean? Well, on its simplest levels, that means that a judge signed off on that there was reasonable suspicion to go in and and find illegal drugs uh, because I believe this was a drug warrant. And the thing with a warrant, actually probable cause uh, as well, and, and you know what you look at is you have to have specificity within the warrant. So when you're writing a warrant, you have to know basically everything that's going on. So let's say, let's use the drug example. It, it works for the Taylor shooting and, and the Taylor warrant, but it also works with my experience and doing warrants in that you have to know what drugs you're looking for and where those drugs are. And so you're not just throwing darts at this thing saying, I think that this, this guy or this girl is a drug dealer and I think they have drugs in the house. No, that's not enough. Okay. There shouldn't be a judge that's signing off on that warrant, right? Don't forget, this is not just a police thing. This is not just a, we're knocking on your door and going in and arresting people. This is a judge signing off on it. So you're presenting evidence to a judge. Okay. So most likely, how does this happen? Well, one of the ways is you have a confidential informant, somebody that has done something, they get arrested. Okay. And most likely in these scenarios, it's someone that's arrested for drugs. And they get arrested and they go, hey, I don't want it to eat this drug charge. I want out. And they go, I know this guy over there and he's selling drugs out of the house. And this is where he keeps those drugs. Okay. Now, then you have to do some additional investigation to collaborate and, and verify that, that those accusations are true. Okay. But that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is undercover work. So you get somebody who goes in and they do a couple drug buys and then they get the evidence that they need to then present to the judge. And then the last way is you can do it through trash pulls. Uh, that's the way uh, I've done some warrants is you literally go and you pick up the person's trash on trash day uh, because the, the Supreme Court has said that trash at the curb is no longer yours and that it's fair game. So anybody who wants to go pick that trash up, well, they're more than welcome to. Uh, I can tell you it's a, it's a terrible, terrible idea. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, is uh, I think, scarred me for life from uh, Red Lobster. Nothing against Red Lobster, but I still have the vivid memory of <laughs> Red Lobster uh, scraps in the trash that was a week old. Terrible, terrible. Um, but, you know, I digress. Th- these things you're not doing them one time. You have to do them multiple times in order to get a valid search warrant. So you're having these instances that come up multiple times and you're getting a warrant. So you have a really good idea of this is what is going on in this place at this time. Now, could it be that things change from the moment that you get the evidence to getting the warrant to actually serving the warrant? Yes, absolutely 100% possible because there are delays essentially in the process because, hey, 
you do a trash pull, you get your evidence, you write your report, you wait a week because, well, trash comes about once a week. You go get the trash the next week, you do it again, you write your report, you get it to a supervisor, you kick it over to somebody who then writes up the warrant, takes it to a judge, judge signs off on it, you bring it back. Then the investigation comes of, all right, what does the house look like? Do we have any pictures of the inside of the house? Who's in the house? Okay, all of those important pieces because you want to know what you're walking into both from a layout standpoint and from a person standpoint. What are the other areas around there? Where are your danger points? Where could a civilian get injured, right? All of those different pieces and you're looking at all of those. So this is not an immediate thing. So there are some some lapses that could occur. And if it's a, a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, yeah, it's possible that a boyfriend-girlfriend moves out and takes that stuff along with them. But it's not an immediate thing. But keep in mind also, a judge has signed off on it. And there's been basically a pattern of what's gone on. So um, that's how it works getting to that point of having the warrant. And then when you get there, and we've heard a lot about this no-knock warrant. Now, I've, I've heard some rumblings that, hey, they actually did knock when they went to the front door. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, and here's the thing, I guess, from having been involved, and I, I haven't done an actual real-life no-knock warrant, but I've been involved in the training for no-knock warrants. And look, you, you train how you play, if you will. So the training matches how it's done. And I had the good fortune to work at two of the best trained agencies. I, I would say potentially in the country, uh, but definitely in Florida at, at Hillsborough County and Pinellas County. Uh, like I said, two of the, the top-notch training agencies. And you have a no-knock warrant, and basically, you're busting down the front door. Most times, there's what's called a flashbang. So it's, it's exactly what it, it is. It, it creates a, a light, a flash, and then a bang, a sound. And it, it's meant to essentially confuse and disorient because they want to avoid shootouts. The, the idea is to avoid shootouts. You do a no-knock warrant because you think that there is a high potential for violence. There's always a potential for violence anytime you're serving a warrant. There's no warrant that is low risk. Okay. There are categories within a warrant within warrant service that is low risk and high risk, but they're always high risk in real in, in terms of relativity. Okay. Um, I've done quote unquote low risk warrants with FDLE and those truly are, you know, it, it's low level crimes, but there's always that you know this could go really bad because you just don't know what's inside a person's mind, okay? But in these no-knock warrants, you are expecting there to be somebody who has guns, most likely, okay? And someone who's most likely to use them. And, and that is where it comes into play. The idea is to move fast, to move quick, and to act on the element of surprise, which is why they're done late at night, okay? Like that is. Plus, you have less people moving around, so you have less chance for any kind of collateral damage, if you will. So, that's what it is. So the moment that front door breaks down, those guys, police with a warrant, police with a warrant, police with a warrant. So I don't necessarily, I'm assuming that that's how it was done. So I don't necessarily understand how there could be confusion as to who was there. And most times they're dressed either in OD green or black and generally have police written across the front. So that's how those things works. That's, that's how that entry happens. Okay. Um, so like I said, the point of it is, is actually to help reduce the chances of a violent confrontation. But clearly in this case, they did. 
two people were shot in it. One of them was a police officer and one of them was Miss Taylor. It is a really unfortunate end result for it. But that's the mechanics of how we get there. Now, do I understand why a grand jury did indict the one officer for shooting into the apartment next door? Yeah, because it sounds like he didn't really know exactly where he was shooting at. He was essentially shooting blindly through a window from what I understand. Okay. And yeah, that's wrong. Okay. Uh, That would violate any training method that I've ever been a part of. You need to actually know what you're shooting at and where you're shooting at. And most times with the firearms that the people doing warrants, most times a SWAT team, sometimes a narcotics unit, depending on the agency, they're using pretty high powered weapons and you have to know, and they train you on this, that the ammunition for those guns will go through a wall. So you have to take in consideration where you are shooting and knowing that it is likely going to pierce a wall and what is on the other side of that wall, okay? As an aside, it's one of the reasons why AR-15s are generally bad for home defense, okay? Because of that aspect, right? Because you could actually shoot, well, technically you could shoot through a person through a wall and into the next room, which would be really bad in a, in a home defense situation. But that is a little off topic, if you will. Uh, but that is that is how we got there. So I do understand the 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 indictment where the one officer was charged with shooting into the the apartment next door. And uh, but that's how the indictments work. That is how a warrant is generally done. Now I wasn't there for that warrant. So clearly they may not have done those things, but from my training, those were how those warrants were done. All right. From having served warrants, having an understanding of how those things come about. All right. That is what I would have expected what I just explained, but we don't know. I wasn't there. You weren't there. None of us were there um, except for the officers, Miss Taylor and uh, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, not exactly sure uh, what the status was. The, the gentleman that was there, we'll call him. They're the only ones that know how it went down. And that is where I'll leave it with that. If you have any questions on how a, how a grand jury works or warrants work or indictments work, by all means, reach out to me, 855-LAW-FATHER. Uh, so let's jump into... Uh, I guess an equally controversial topic, but maybe a, a little uh, little less serious, if you will. Uh, and let's look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's potential replacement. Now, look, I know that this is a political minefield, okay? And we'll just leave that part of it right there because as a lawyer, I'm not concerned with the, the political minefield aspect to it. And in my own humble opinion for what it's worth... I really think that the Supreme Court should not have any aspect of partisanness to it, right? I, our local judges are nonpartisan, meaning that they're not Republican, they're not Democrat. We have Monique Scott in our office running for county court judge. She can't even mention topics or get into topics that could show whether she's Republican or Democrat, okay? I work with her every day. I have no idea. <laughs> so... Um, that's how it works. And I really think that the highest court in the land should be the same way, right? Um, I was talking to my wife the other day, and we were looking at the candidates for the sheriff's office race. Well, the sheriff's office race in Florida is partisan. And 
I don't really necessarily understand, understand that either because if I have someone who's going to be the chief law enforcement in a county, I don't want them to be Republican or Democrat or any other party. I just want them to be the one that's going to uphold the law and do it in the best way possible. So I, I think judges are the same way, and I think the Supreme Court really should be the same. Uh, the Supreme Court makes a lot of important decisions, and they really need to be rooted in the Constitution. That's, that's their role. That's their job. Their job is to interpret the Constitution, take this written document and apply it to real-life events, and apply it to changing times, right? Because the things that we have going on in the world now and the technology that we have in the world in 2020, it's not the same as it was in the 1700s. So we have this living, breathing document. It, in my opinion, these judges should be nonpartisan, but we are where we are with that. And uh, so we have Amy Coney Barrett, who has been nominated for the Supreme Court, pulled a couple of her the most we'll call them famous decisions there's uh you know because she's an appellate court judge there's not really any earth-shattering type decisions but uh you know a couple that really tie into the constitution that i pulled and uh there was one where she wrote a dissent uh and it had to do with uh gun rules for uh, convicted convicted felons um and federally and locally, if you have been convicted of a felony, uh, you can't carry a gun. And uh, what she wrote in one of her biggest dissents, that while both Wisconsin and the United States have an unquestionably strong interest in protecting the public from gun violence, they have failed to show by either logic or data that disarming Cantor substantially advances that interest. Now, in this particular case, uh, this individual had a felony. It was, uh, I believe, a third-degree felony. So in Florida, third degree is your lowest-type felony. States vary as to how they determine the different degrees and how what they call them, all right? But we were talking about, in this particular instance, a non-violent felon, and the majority of that court said, yeah, the, the court was correct in, in convicting him and not allowing him as a convicted felon to have a gun. But what... What uh, Judge Barrett has said is, well, hey, it kind of defies logic when we're talking about someone who it was it was a nonviolent crime. It was, uh, I believe, more of like a, a white white collar type crime. So uh, that was kind of her stance on on gun rights. Now, here's I, I think you know something that as an attorney I find more important, if you will, and, and it's access to having a lawyer and that in any adversarial proceeding, you have the right to an attorney. But if it's not an adversarial proceeding, especially in federal court, so keep in mind we're dealing with federal court here, that you are not fully entitled to an attorney if it's a non-adversarial proceeding. And in this particular case, it was a Wisconsin man who shot his wife, uh, but in, in his defense, he said that he had been provoked, which would make his shooting a second-degree homicide and not a first-degree homicide. And, and first-degree would carry a higher and stiffer penalty than a second-degree. And there was a pretrial hearing that occurred, and the prosecutors weren't present, and it was the, the defense attorneys weren't present. It was solely from my understanding of the, the brief synopsis of this case that I got that it was just the defendant and the judge. And the judge asked the defendant questions, and... 
the side of that, well, no, that the defendant wasn't provoked and that it should be first degree. And, and so the court said, hey, uh, that was fine. Um, so the appellate court said, no, uh, this defendant actually should have been entitled to an attorney in this. Uh, but Judge Barrett was part of the dissent in this, and, and she brings up a good point. And this is where dissents and those opinions are important because it's one thing to say somebody's right and somebody's wrong and just leave it at that. And you have this question mark as to why. But in her dissent, Judge Barrett stated, perhaps the right to counsel should extend to a hearing like the one the judge conducted in Schmidt's case. But federal law precludes us from disturbing a state court's judgment on the ground that a state court decided an open question differently than we would. Or, for that matter, differently than we think the Supreme Court would. Now, keep in mind, this is when, and, and she still is, part of an appellate court. So she's guessing what the Supreme Court would say. But here's the important part, I think, about this, is her job is to interpret the law. Her job is to interpret the law and the Constitution. And what she's saying in this is, hey, I may not agree that that this person should be allowed to have this hearing uh, without a judge, or excuse me, without his attorney present, but the law says otherwise. And the law says, the federal law in this particular instance says, we don't get involved in this, so we're out. Not our fight. And I think that's an important thing. And I think we could potentially see that as we move through with her that, yeah, and I, that would make her, and I'm no constitutional law expert by any stretch of the imagination, but what's known as a strict constructionist, meaning that you take it by the words on the page for the Constitution, and, and you, that, that is your gospel. That is what you are going by. And it sounds like that's what, what she's going to be doing. Now, look, does that make her Republican or Democrat? I don't know. But I know if I am looking at who me as an attorney would want on a Supreme Court. I want someone who's going to interpret the law and and strictly construe the law. Now, we get into details on that, but that's not a political stance. That's a legal stance. And, and lawyers, yes, five lawyers, we're all going to have different opinions on that, ranging anywhere from strict construction to the most liberal construction of it to somewhere in between. Okay. But the law is the law and I guess I would probably fall in that same category of it's black and white. This is what it says. Okay. This is what the words on the page say. And it's not necessarily up for us to interpret them unless they're vague. All right. So that's, that's where that falls uh, more of a legal piece than a political piece, but that is the potential replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who she would be the, she being judge Barrett would be the youngest Supreme Court justice, which means she could potentially have a very long tenure as a Supreme Court justice and the fifth woman to serve as a Supreme Court justice. So I want to talk about one last piece here, uh, and it's more of a a news thing, but it's a story that I plan on covering from a different angle. Uh, and, And it's kind of amazing sometimes from a small world aspect, how things kind of come up. Uh, if you think back, you may remember those of you in Florida, at least that there was a shooting down in Miami after a UPS truck was stolen and a police chase, and then a shootout following the crash of that UPS truck, uh, with the person who stole the UPS truck 
and uh, the police. Uh, all of it was on video. Um, it may have even been news video because I had read that it was uh, caught on a live broadcast. So uh, the person who stole the UPS truck was eventually killed by the police. There was a civilian that was shot by somebody in that whole process. And the story that I will be covering in a podcast, in a future podcast, is uh, the side of the civilian who has filed a lawsuit against the city of Miami, uh, or it may have been Miami Gardens, uh, one of those municipalities in South Florida uh, for uh, the shooting of the civilian. Okay, we are going to talk about that in a future podcast. But there was a, a sh- another shooting in Miami recently that ties into this. Uh, there was a, a football coach, a high school football coach down in Miami who was shot and killed by his nephew. And this nephew actually turns out to be the son that was, it was the son of the guy who stole the UPS truck and was killed in the shootout. So kind of a, a, a weird and interesting twist on fate, if you will, as to uh, that particular case. But that is a case that we are going to get into. But because all of this was very recent, that it all popped up. uh, And this uh, shooting of the football coach was, uh, I think, within the last day or so. So kind of sad story all around there. A lot of lives that have been completely altered uh, because of that. But we are going to get into that shooting in a lot more detail. I have its own podcast dedicated to it because we're going to talk about municipalities and uh, suing municipalities and how that works uh, because we have that come up on the personal injury side as well. Uh, Most times in car crashes, less so uh, in shootouts, but it it is something that does happen from time to time. So that is the show for today. Uh, As always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, you want to make any comments, uh, feel free. Lawfather at TampaLawfather.com. That is the email solely dedicated to this show. Check us out on social media. 855-LAWFATHER. Call or text. And Lawfather out. This is an MJ Morning Show podcast quick fix on Radio Influence. Froggy Toilet Paper 2020, what is the new trend? Okay, the new trend, and I've been doing this for one month, <laughs> and I've been trying to talk oh, about this for oh, wait, wait, the last oh, four weeks. Oh, so you're actually doing this? Oh, am I actually <laughs> doing it? I'm doing it. Have you ever seen me look so good? In fact, you do look good. You do look good. In fact, we might say... You're doo-doo doing this, right? <laughs> you're you're doo doing it. <laughs> I tell you, I've never been, I have never felt more invigorated <sighs> in the morning in my life. And All I right. tell you what you need to do is what you need to do is take your toilet paper out from underneath your sink and put it in your fridge. What? Uh, Fester, yes. uh, apparently refrigerating toilet paper is the new big thing. And it's what? So your ass is cool. It's a, a cool refresh. It's almost like your ass is on the top of a mountain and it's like eating a York peppermint patty with your butt cheeks. Is that what it is? I tell you, you know, I don't know if you know, but all the celebrities are doing it out in Hollywood. Oh, the hey, Justin Bieber's. Hey, wait, 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 the, wait, 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 uh, wait, wait. I can't even think of another hey, one, hey, but they're all doing hey, it. Hang on. The only celebrity that's doing stop. it is Justin Bieber. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, stop, stop. You're claiming that you saw. A story that celebrities are putting their toilet paper in the fridge? 
It's the newest celebrity fad. Where the hell did you see this? Where where did this come from? Where did you see the story? It came from peoples.com. From what? The Z. (laughs) No. Are you making this up? No, I didn't make it up. I've been doing it for a month. Peoples with a Z. And I've been texting you guys for a month and telling you, try this. Are you trying to say that this came from People Magazine or People Online? No, it came from Peoples with three Zs. What what are you stopping? The MJ Morning Show podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, mjmorningshow.com, and radioinfluence.com. 